Welcome to Changeling Cast, the podcast dedicated to reading and dissecting urban fantasy, paranormal, and speculative romance series. I'm your host, Mara, from the YouTube channel Books Like Woe, and this season we are making our way through Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series. interesting episode today, guys, because I am not feeling the best. I have an autoimmune disease, and that means some days it's like, hey, guess what? You are going to have zero energy, and all you're going to want to do is stay in bed, Uh, which is what today is. So if the sound sounds a little bit different, it's because we're coming to you live from the Lyquo bedroom bed. Uh, You may hear kitty cats coming in and out and purring and demanding pets. Um, But we're just, we're going to make it work. And luckily, I get to talk about a book that I absolutely love. Um, Well, I say that. It's not my favorite in the series, but I'd say it's like, it's definitely in the top 10. And uh, I just really enjoyed rereading this. We are talking about Shields of Winter, which is the 13th full book in the Side Changeling series. And uh, it is after, like somewhat anticlimactically just because Heart of Obsidian is just the zenith or the the peak of this series for me. Um, But, you know, Shields of Winter is still very, very good. And uh, even if we're coming off of my all-time favorite book in the series, we're still going to have a good one to talk about. So in terms of how this book falls and sort of its place in the series, I would say that this book is very similar to books 3 and 12, which are two of my favorites in the series. They are Caressed by Ice and Heart of Obsidian, as we were just saying. Um, Shields of Winter, I think, is a very similar book in terms of the dynamic of the two main characters. Um, it also is in what I kind of think of as like a three book arc at the end of the first season of the series. So books 12, 13, and 14, I feel like all really go together. um, Because it's sort of the, it's the payoff of everything that's been building up in the first season. So in the last book, we had Caleb officially taking control of the Cynet and silence officially falling. This is the book where we finally are paying off the um, buildup of the infection that has been happening in the Cynet, which we have seen since, I want to say the fifth book, but definitely in the seventh book when there was the uh, kind of outbreak at the Sunshine Station in Alaska. Um, That has been sort of slowly building. And actually at the beginning of this book, patient eight or patients... Subject? Subject. There we go. Subject 891 uh, died and and died of the infection. So really, we have a true culmination in the series at this point, where um, the Cyanet is literally falling apart, like it is disintegrating before everyone's very eyes. And that is sort of what this book is about. And, you know, we're going to talk about this book, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say we find a solution for that. And then um, book 14 is really sort of the like the denouement. So bringing together some of the loose threads and kind of settling into the new political order um, 
after everything that's happened in these first <laughs> in the first season. Uh, and then Allegiance of Honor is sort of a transition to a second season. So this book is sort of the middle of that three book arc. The other reason why I think of these three books as kind of going together is that they're the first full books where well, not even just full books, but just the first stories in the series where both of our main characters are Psy. So in Heart of Obsidian, we had Caleb and Sahara, Caleb being a dual cardinal who is both um, telepathic and telekinetic, and uh, Sahara being basically a type of SF Psy. And then in this book, we have Vasic. Yay! We love Vasic. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but I had suspected that he was the ghost for a long time, because I figured that there was probably a teleporter involved in being the ghost. Uh, So I thought that he might have been our hero in book 12, but he is actually our hero in book 13. So he is an arrow. So he is our first active arrow who is a hero. Spoilers for the next full book, but the next full book also has an active arrow as the hero, and that is Aiden, Aiden, um, who we we love, we stan Aiden, and uh, so he's the hero in the next in the next book. But this is our first arrow hero, and Vasek, like I said, is a true teleporter, so he is a kind of TK Psy, and his heroine is Ivy Jane, who is not quite a cardinal empath, but she's, I think, like a 9.4, so she's she's very nearly a cardinal empath, and uh, they are getting together in this book. So I think for the, the summary, let's start with the macro plot, and then we'll go back to the micro. So for the macro plot, there is a lot that happens in this book. If I have one critique of this book, I actually feel like the pacing of it is a little off um, because there's a lot happening in the couple and there's a lot happening in the macro plot. And I think sometimes it felt a little overstuffed. But anyway, with the macro plot, like a lot of shit goes down in this book. So we have, like I mentioned at the end of the last book, Caleb has seized control of the Sinet and he is, um, he is a dictator, <laughs> but he mentions at one point to Sahara, like I'm a very lenient dictator considering the amount of like, uh, you know, political unrest I'm allowing to continue. But everybody kind of knows somebody has to have control right now of the Sinet because things are falling apart very quickly. So like I mentioned at the very beginning of the book, um, subject 891 dies. Caleb knows that the infection is accelerating and he knows that there is something with the empaths that will help based on what the net mind has kind of shown him, but he doesn't know exactly how that should work. So what he goes to the arrows and asks them to help him with is he wants to run an experiment where they take 10 empaths who are pretty high gradient and, um, put them in an isolated area that is not near an active infection site right now for the Sinet, but kind of herd the infection towards them and see if they're able to kind of contain it or combat it um, and how they're able to do that so that they can then try to roll that out to the rest of the Sinet because he sees that both individual Sai are um, quickly deter- like coming to a critical point of this infection. This it, It's kind of described as sort of like, in the cyanide, it looks like this black oily substance. And that's kind of, it's almost like tar on people's psyche and in the cyanide in general. Um, 
So they want to see if they can, you know, do something about the actual individual in, in infections, infestations, but they also want to see if the cyanide itself can be cleansed. So they're kind of wanting to tackle both sides of this problem, and they want to use this group of 10 um, empaths to do that. So Ivy Jane is one of them, and all of there's 10 arrows, actually more, but at least 10 arrows who are assigned to these 10 empaths, and they're going to kind of like take care of them and watch over them and protect them while they are working on that project. So that is part of what's happening in the macro plot. I should mention that the place that they take them to is, if you will recall, oh goodness, when was this? This was probably back, I think this was in Branded by Fire, when there was that hyena attack on Snowdancer land that borders the Dark River pack. There was like that cabin. That area is where they choose to quickly kind of build a little encampment and they get the participation and buy-in from Dark River and Snowdancer. Um, in part, the reason they want to do it there is because Sasha Duncan is the only, you know, out and proud cardinal empath and they want um, her to be nearby to kind of help guide these empaths as they're like learning their trade, so to speak. So that is one piece of macro plot. Um, another piece of macro plot that is happening is that Ming fucking Laban is still out and about on his bullshit. He um, is very unhappy with the idea of no longer having access to Vasek because Vasek has been, I mean, is one of the only true t teleporters left. And he's saved Ming Laban several times from like kind of dire situations. So he is really wanting to get control of Vasek back. So he is hatching a plot to try to catch Vasek unawares and inject him with Jax, which if you will recall, is a drug that really is mostly impacting Psy. And it uh, essentially makes them controllable. They can also get addicted to it. It's like a real bad scene. And they were trying to essentially give this en masse to the arrows to make them all very, like almost like a brainless zombie army, <laughs> like killer army. And uh, the arrows with Judd, Lauren's example, kind of organized to thwart that plan. But Ming is wanting to get... Vasek back under his control so he's gonna try to like shoot him up with a bunch of jacks and then like take him over so there's that happening that is attempted and failed um later on in the book but that is a, a macro plot element another thing with Ming fucking Laban is that because of the increased instability in the Sinet, Caleb Krychek goes to Hawk and asks him to pause on his plot to get revenge against Ming Laban. Basically, he lays it out that while Ming is not the most powerful person in the Sinet, and he is also no longer a counselor because the council no longer exists, he is still a very big presence in the Sinet, particularly in Europe. And there is concern with how much instability that there is in the Sinet in general, that if he were to die or to disappear, that that would like wreak havoc on the Sinet in that area. Ming also has the largest army of any of the Psy. Even though Caleb controls the arrows and he himself is so powerful, he is more powerful than Ming. Ming does have this very big 
kind of army at his disposal. So Hawk gets real pissy about that and has to go like hold Sienna and gripe about it. But he kind of agrees, okay, we got to wait until this calms down a little bit before we spring that into action. So that's sort of like the setup for the macro plot. And what starts to happen is that there are just a series of um, kind of like mass casualty events basically happening in the Synet. It is an interesting parallel because I think that it's it, it seems somewhat analogous to almost like climate change. You could see, I mean, this is because Nalini Singh did a great job of setting up a speculative element that lends itself well to a lot of different metaphorical resonances to it. Um, But I throughout was kind of thinking about this in the context of climate change, but also it is described very much like a virus. And so I think in our plague ridden times, it was hard to not think of like COVID and kind of the resonances to basically living through a pan, like a a very virulent pandemic. Um, And that sort of is becomes the backdrop of macro plot in this book. We kind of kick off where there is this mass um, violent event in Alaska. And basically, when the arrows and the empaths who they're taking care of get there, they realize that basically there's like this huge swath of the Synet that is literally disintegrating, almost like the way it's described, it sort of reminds me of like old parchment and how like if you pick it up, it just sort of disintegrates because there's no substance left to it. That's kind of what the Synet has become in these areas. And so Caleb and Aden, or I think it's, I think it should be pronounced Aiden. Let's just go with Aiden. Caleb and Aiden are able to work together to sort of cordon off the parts that are so beyond repair that they can't be fixed. So that happens. And unfortunately, that results in the death of the Psy who are still anchored in that area. But the other thing that happens is that all of these people who've had sort of like these low level infestations in their mind, um, they go mad, basically, when it sort of hits a critical mass of degradation. And it's basically described, we get a bunch of these incidences in the book, and it almost is like a zombie outbreak. So it's all of these Psy who literally just go mad and start killing anybody who they can get their hands on. So I mean, it it does get pretty real. It gets pretty graphic in some of these descriptions. So just FYI there. I will also say that when I was reading these scenes, I was like, God damn it, we need to have like an HBO or a Netflix or someone needs to make this into a, a, a long running series because this book in particular, I was like, this would be so cinematic. <laughs> like this would be a great uh, visual for a TV show. So someone at one of these networks, get your act together. And I don't know what the adaptation rights are like these days, but someone needs to get the adaptation rights for this and make this happen because I just think it would be epic. But anyway, so we get these like really um, detailed descriptions of violence and uh, the empaths are there trying to help stem it. The arrows are there essentially trying to get everything back under control in conjunction with local changeling and human law enforcement groups. So they're all working together to try to like stem the tide. But this happens over and over again. And things just seem to be getting worse. It starts with that one in Alaska. There's a few that happen in New York. Um, and they just start breaking out really all over the globe. And they're happening in increasingly rapid succession. And what they realize is that 
well, they, there's a few things. Essentially, there's like a, a learning process through all of these incidences throughout the book. And we're following Ivy Jane in particular. So we're lear- like we're in her point of view in, in particular learning kind of um, how to manage these. Sasha also comes in to help um, when things are about to hit a critical mass in New York and uh, also tries to get some insight into exactly what's happening. But basically, what we come to find out is that People, so when these mass infestations happen, if they can get there quickly enough, they can put a lot of the people who are infected, they can sort of like trip them into going into like a coma state rather than going fully mad. So they're increasingly able to do that. There's also some of these empaths who have basically like a medical empathic ability, and they're particularly suited to working with these coma patients and trying to understand what's going on with them. They can also like feel people's last moments of despair and death. Uh, Ivy has a very close friend she develops through this process named Jaya. Um, And Jaya is one of these medical empaths. So she sort of helps um, Ivy Jane understand exactly what that feels like. Um, So anyway, they're, they're kind of learning more about their individual empathic abilities. We realize that Ivy is able to sort of send out these, um, like moments of calm, but it takes her a long time in the book to really start to get any kind of mastery over that. And she ends up like burning herself out really quickly. Like she'll have like, and like brain hemorrhages kind of situation. And she'll, it, it's like a, it's a bad scene. And as her and Basic are getting together, he gets pretty agitated about that. But so there's a lot of trial and error there. But what they start to realize is that most of the people are either becoming violent or going into these comas. But there's always a few of them who don't seem to be impacted. And Sahara, who is, if you'll remember, Caleb's mate from the last book, is kind of working on trying to understand like any patterns to the people who are not affected. So one obvious group who are not uh, impacted are empaths. And usually somebody who the empath is living with. So for instance, in um, one of the first attacks, it's so sad, there's this little girl, this like baby girl who um, they find in the back of this apartment and her caregiver has been killed, but the little girl was not impacted. And then her mom shows up and we find out that her caregiver was like a relative. So all three of them were not impacted because the mom and the little girl were uh, empaths. And then this um, relative who was living with them also just like got protection from this infection by living with the empaths. So slowly as time goes on, what they realize is even people who don't seem to have a connection to the empaths do actually have some sort of connection. I should mention that another piece of the puzzle that is happening um, kind of on a macro plot level is that Pure pure Psy has fallen away. There's a couple of like little blips with them where some of their lieutenants are still hanging around and uh, causing trouble. But for the most part, Pure Psy has gone away, but there's a new pro-silence group within the Psynet called Silent Voices. And... They are very small in the scheme of things, but they do represent this contingent of people in the Synet who are basically just like afraid. That's kind of what it boils down to. And they have basically like sci-fi racism towards empaths. So um, there's actually several different attacks on Ivy Jane, but also other empaths by these different groups who have varying degrees of violence against against them and um, varying degrees of organization. So some of them are sort of just like 
opportunistic attacks. Some of them are more coordinated. Uh, but that is also a thread that is happening is that while we're discovering more and more exactly what role the empaths play in stabilizing the Cynet, we're also seeing that there are still Psy out there who basically like don't trust the E Psy. They are, like are basically racist towards them. And um, yeah, so that's, I think, an interesting note that is happening as well. Ivy, towards the end of the book, is the first person to sort of like master how to send out basically like a a chill vibe <laughs> to outbreaks. So she has this moment where she experiments with basically sending out this tranquil energy to everybody in the vicinity. And that allows, um, you know, these these situations to be resolved a lot less violently. By this point, we're also seeing um, mobs going against Psy, because like, even if you are not Psy, and you're not going crazy, if you happen to be like, on the street where one of these outbreaks happens, you will get killed just like any of the Psy will. So like, obviously, there's humans and changelings who are resenting and afraid of the Psy because of this. So that is starting to happen. But um, they are mostly able to stop that because Ivy does figure out how to sort of like send out these calming effects. And that training kind of gets disseminated amongst all these empaths who at this point, it's not just the 10 who we met at the beginning, but like all of these empaths are waking up and kind of like being forced to figure out how to use their skills because of this sort of critical moment in the Synet. So once Sahara figures out um, that pattern and realizes that even people who people who are not infected, even ones who don't look like they have that they're not empaths or have like an immediate connection to an empath, the more you dig into their lives, the more you find out like, oh, okay, they have like a neighbor across the hall who they say hi to who is an empath. And um, Sahara and Caleb are able to show uh, Ivy and Vasek kind of like where to go looking for some of these bonds. So Ivy goes out into the Synet. And she asks the net mind to show her what these bonds look like. And when she does, she realizes that she has a bond to Vasek, obviously, because like we'll get into here in a minute, like they're in love. Uh, but she also has a bond not only to Vasek and Aiden and some of the other arrows who she has been de been dealing with in, in the immediate proximity of her life, but also sort of like the second layer of like these little golden tendrils of connection. So like maybe she isn't connected to Bob the Arrow who she's never met. But because Bob the Arrow has been talking to Aiden, she also has like this golden empathic tendril that's going into his psyche that is giving him protection. She, we also find out I should say earlier in the book, um, that the empaths who have an arrow assigned to them, all of them sort of like merge their shields together. And that merging is giving protection from the arrows from becoming infected. So like, they kind of knew that the empaths could do this. But like, she's seeing that that connection is much farther reaching than she'd realized. And so then they go, they basically go do like a test where she meets two arrows who she's never interacted with, with before. But after spending a little bit of time with her and sort of Vasek, um, kind of prompting them and saying, hey, you can trust her. That connection slots in for them, but she loses two 
kind of secondary connection she had through Aiden. So what they realized from this is basically that all empaths have like a certain sphere of connection that they have with both people who they, you know, are like genuinely in their lives, but also sort of like passing acquaintances or just people sort of in their general orbit. And every empath has a different sort of range of the number of people they can impact. Because Ivy is such a high gradient of empath, she's able to have also this secondary level of protection for people. But if you're like a lower gradient, it's really only people that you actually kind of know. But what they realize from this is that the way that the empaths impact the Cynet is that they create what what they call the honeycomb protocol, which is, you know, I may have five, let's say I have like five people in my immediate family who I give protection to. And then those people also have maybe like a passing acquaintanceship with another empath. And as your sort of relationships ebb and flow in your life with all of the different empaths that you happen to know, you're always sort of within somebody's web of empathic, you know, benefit to you. And so you have sort of like layers of protection from the poisonousness that can result and like kind of the madness that can result from uh, being in the Cynet. So basically what they realize is like, hey, all of you Psy who have been avoiding emotional connection like the plague, we need you to like meet and talk to an empath in your life. Like we need you to identify who the empath in your life is and like make some some kind of connection with them. And because the Cynet is falling apart at such a rapid rate and like all of the Psy are super scared and like it's sort of, you know, meltdown mode, once that kind of directive goes out, um, people are open to it. And as the weeks start going on, other people beyond just the empaths can see those golden connections and they can all see that their connection to the empaths is what is like now driving the infection out and keeping the Cynet physically together. So as that happens, finally, we have some of these people who have been infected and were kind of in comas starting to wake up. And slowly, basically what we have an indication of is that the Cynet, like this is what is going to be able to save the Cynet is this honeycomb protocol. Um, Ivy also becomes the first president of essentially like the ESI union. (laughs) And she is sort of their representative on the new political formation that is emerging, which is called the ruling coalition, I believe is what it's called. Basically the way that they're, so this is a sort of transitioning away from Caleb being sort of this benevolent dictator and moving into a more formalized political structure that is going to be sort of the post honeycomb protocol, post side council world. And the analogy that Sahara and Caleb are kind of making for this ruling body is that it's never going to be the side cannot operate in a democracy just because of the nature of their power. That's just not how it works. But what they want to move towards is more like what the changelings have, where there is a sort of pack hierarchy, but it is rooted not in sort of brutality or um, like ambition and aggression. It's rooted in the strong 
take care of the less strong, but really like those who are not like not even strong weak. The dominant take care of the non-dominant and the non-dominant are what give the dominant, you know, like all the support that they need to be able to have that kind of role in the pack. That is where they're trying to move the Sinet towards. So that, I'm trying to think if we hit all of the macro, I guess the only other thing is that um, as a part, like kind of during when they're in real crisis mode, one of the things that also is happening is that they realize that they need to be able to mobilize and cooperate between all three of the races, depending on wherever, you know, the breakout is going to happen. So, you know, if there's a breakout in... I don't know, Cairo, you need to be able to, you know, get with the local human law enforcement, you need to be able to reach out to whoever the changeling packs are, etc. As well as, you know, sort of the Psy in that area. And Caleb assigns Silver Mercant to be the one who is going to org- who who is organizing that sort of um, interspecies international relief organization, I guess, is the way to think about it. So that it's alluded to in this, but I wanted to mention that that happens because that does become a very important part of especially season two of the series. Um, And it's definitely like critical in how they kind of get everything back under control and a little bit more stable. So that is all the macro plot stuff, which I think is a lot of the plot. Um, But I say that there's also a ton of stuff with Vasek and Ivy in this. So basically, Vasek, um, he is sort of given up on life. He feels so guilty and so broken from what he has had to do as an arrow that he, I mean, he has a lot of just kind of despair. And Aiden, sorry, I keep calling him Aiden, Aiden, (laughs) God. Okay, hopefully I get this together before our next episode. Aiden uh, is his best friend, and he's really worried about him. And he specifically picks him for this empath assignment, because he kind of is wanting to put him on like desk duty ish, like he's wanting to take him out of the field, because he feels like he's reaching a breaking point. And he knows that the empaths um, potentially have this ability to help stabilize people. And he's hoping that, you know, just whoever he happens to get paired with will help him do that. Well, he gets paired with Ivy Jane, who is just the best. (laughs) She's so sweet. And just, I don't know, she just has a lovely energy about her in this book. She is very, she, she reminds me a lot of the changeling heroines who I've enjoyed. She's not dominant, I guess, in that way. But she reminds, she, she just is very, she, she reminds me a lot maybe of Sasha, which makes sense because she's a fellow empath, but she has, you know, like this sort of steely core, but she is incredibly emotionally attuned, etc. She has a very um, distressing backstory because she got taken in for reconditioning that basically was really botched and pretty much like it almost killed her. And Actually, as the story progresses, um, her conditioning totally breaks down and starts to like make her brain bleed. And Aiden has to come in and like fix her conditioning, um, which is when her empathic abilities really take off from there. But um, her parents actually chose after that botched reconditioning to bring her to this settlement in North Dakota with other Psy families who basically had somebody in their family with broken conditioning. 
and basically try to protect and hide her. And so we get this lovely instance where there is a Psy family who stayed together and had, even if they couldn't describe it as emotion and loyal, you know, love and, and connectedness, like clearly that's what was happening. And so she had these two parents who like basically um, gave everything up to try to like give her a chance at having some kind of a quality of life. Um, something else that's very sweet about Ivy is that while she was healing from that, she was still sort of like in a almost like walking comatose state. Like she was just completely devoid of not even just emotion, but just like she was almost like a, a, a vacuous void of a human. Like it, it sounds like that was a real dark time. Um, but she finds this injured dog who she names Rabbit. It's this little white dog. And uh, she helps nurse it back to health. And as she's nursing Rabbit back to health, Rabbit helps nurse her back to health. So I think we get a lot of um, kind of good, essentially like a type of emotional support animal for Ivy. But then we also see Rabbit doing that for a lot of the arrows in the pack. Or I say pack, but I feel like that's Freudian because really what we also see in this, because we're spending all these time this time with the arrows, is that the arrows really are a kind of pack and they have like I just feel for these <laughs> poor sweet arrows so much because they've been through everything. They just expect everybody to treat them as like expendable nothing, but they're utterly loyal to each other. And they like try to take care of each other. And Aiden and Vasek are trying to like hold it together for all of them. Oh, it kills me. But anyway, we I, I definitely think we see a lot of metaphorical resonance in this book of um, like how we treat soldiers. So I can't speak for everywhere. But like, at least in the US, um, we ask our well, this would be like a whole tangent about like how the U.S. very purposefully, I would argue, uh, keeps people in situations where the armed forces become one of the only palatable like ways out of the situation that they find themselves in economically because of our like crumbling social safety net. And then we treat, we ship them off to these wars and then we treat them horribly there and we treat them horribly when they come back and they're traumatized and they don't have sufficient access to like the services they need. Okay. So that's like (laughs) what was going through my, my mind is that this to me was very resonant to that state of affairs. So like seeing all that to say, seeing sweet little rabbit basically be like a, emotional support dog to Ivy, but then also to Vasic and also to the other arrows. I just thought was very sweet. So anyway, that's how Ivy Jane kind of like comes back to herself is by taking care of this dog. And Vasic shows up to give her this job offer. And it's basically just like, he's done from there. He doesn't realize it. But like, he immediately has this protective um, kind of attitude towards her. We find out um, in these sort of like little sidebars that Nalini Singh often peppers through her books, we find out that there's often um, a gender skewing for TKs and E's. There tend to be more male TKs and there tend to be more female E's. And pretty much what we're discovering in this book is that the empaths and what eventually become sort of like, well, the Isai like union, but like the honeycomb protocol, the honeycomb alliance, whatever, you know, you want to refer to it as they give the arrows a purpose beyond being assassins to be protectors. 
And really Vasek embodies that, that he has, he's, he's characterized as being deeply loyal, deeply protective and deeply honorable. And we see that the conditioning that he was given starting when he was four years old, like he was basically physically and mentally abused in horrible ways, that it took those protective instincts and warped them into this like aggressive, violent, murderous path that he didn't get to choose. And it in it fundamentally violates his core sense of self in a way that is why he felt so broken and in despair the last few years. And by having Ivy for himself and like developing this relationship with her, he comes to have like a new purpose of protecting her and the other ease. And so he's able to use his gifts in a way that is not like that doesn't violate his core sense of self in the same way. So that's really like the journey that he's on. The other thing that's happening in terms of the journey he's on is that in his sort of state of despair, he agreed to be a test subject for this sort of like biomedical device implant on his arm. It's sort of like a gauntlet gauntlet. And uh, it has a bunch of different capabilities, including like super sweet laser he can shoot at people, um, but also like comms, etc. But the problem is, is that it was highly experimental. And the inventor of this device um, went missing. And in his absence, they proceeded with trying to implant it into somebody, even though it wasn't actually really ready for that. And so this device is literally a ticking time bomb on his body because it is increasingly shorting out and they can't just like do an amputation straight up and just get it off of him because it's also the way that it was implanted was into his like brainstem. That's a part of how it works. So he now has to live with this, you know, he he didn't care that he was going to die. Aiden cared he was going to die. The other arrows all cared that he was going to die, but he didn't until he meets Ivy and he realizes that he does want to live, that he is worthy of having a life beyond what his time as an arrow was. But he's stuck with kind of having made this choice already that is going to limit his time. And they, they find out, I think at about the 25 ish percent mark that he likely only has basically like a few weeks left to live. Like it's, it's reaching kind of critical critical mass at this point. So there's a side quest where all of the arrows are working on trying to find a solution for him. They reach out to Dev Santos, um, who's the head of the Forgotten. Oh, I should mention that at the beginning of the book, also Caleb and Dev uh, have a an official peace between the Forgotten and the Psy and the Psynet. Um, so that that's a lovely little little moment. Um, but so the Forgotten are trying to find ways to help him. Um, every it's like all hands on deck. And that's part of what's so sweet is that Vasek doesn't see how loved he is and how much he's done for all of these people and how much like they want to give back to him and help him. Oh, I'm a sucker for that kind of character. And like, this definitely fit that archetype. Um, so he, so we're trying to find out how to like save his arm. Um, if you will recall from book five, a character called Z Zen, we knew that he was a part of the resistance to the Psy Council. Uh, and Vasek, we had seen him kind of working with him a couple of times. He is the, well, the way this was stated, I couldn't quite tell. On paper, he is the father of Ashaya's son, Kenan, who calls him like grandpa. 
But it sounds like maybe he's not actually the biological father of... Like, I couldn't quite tell from the way this was stated. But basically, we'd met Zizen previously, and he's sort of like a very respected... Um, piece of the of the Sinet in general, uh, in terms of like his scientific discoveries, etc. But he's also been a very big part of the resistance. And we find out in this book that Vasek is actually his biological great grandson. And he refers to him as the son of his heart. It's very sweet. Like basically, he sees him as his like, you know, he's had other kids just because of different fertilization contracts or whatever. But like, he sees him as his like true family and his his son. And he wasn't in a position to to keep him from going into the arrow training at the time. And he like lives with a lot of regret for that. And so he is like, very committed to finding a way to help Vasek get out of this. So he goes to Anthony Caracas, because he's like, hey, I'm wondering if you know what happened to the scientists who came up with this device, because that person just went missing. And Anthony basically says that um, he does, he once he finds out why Zizan is asking, he um, says, yes, I actually scooped him up. And actually, Vasek was the one who saved him. So I don't know if you guys remember, but I think this was back in maybe like book nine. There was a Psy who the snow dancers found on their land, like horribly mauled on the brink of death. Well, that was Samuel Rain, who is the bioengineer who came up with Vasek's little arm thingy. And Vasek was the one who ported him from the snow dancer territory to Anthony Caracas. And he didn't even know that that's who it was. So um, full circle moment. So they find the creator of this and they're begging him to help. And at first he's like, his mind is pretty broken, but they are able to sort of like snap him out of it when they, when he sees like this problem he can work on and it sort of gives him this renewed sense of purpose and uh, so he's working on that, but he seems like he's not getting anywhere. So they come up with um, a alternative solution that only has like a 10% chance of success. But once Vasek reaches sort of like the critical mass, that's what they're going to do. And they almost get to that point. But then Sam, like, you know, saving the day, Samuel Rain comes in and is like, okay, I think I figured out how to do this. So at the very end, Vasek does get this gauntlet removed. And uh, he also has his arm amputated as a part of that, which he's also a TK. So not, it really doesn't limit his functionality even all that much. Uh, But they do have to amputate his arm. And, uh, and you know, then he finally allows the bond he's been developing with Ivy to snap into place. And uh, they are going to live happily ever after. He takes Zizen's last name. So he becomes Vasek Zen. And Zizen uh, gives him rings from when he pre-silence was in like the love of his life was another empath who basically burned herself out working trying to save everybody at the beginning of silence it's very sad her name was sunny and he kind of throughout the book is like telling sunny like we're gonna save Vasek, like and he and his empath like i couldn't save you but we're gonna save them and they're gonna have a future so he gives them the rings that he had for her for them and um ivy and Vasek have like a full wedding ceremony at the end i feel like i've actually not talked that much about their connection but it's just like it's very sweet. It's very similar to the dynamic between Judd and Brenna and the dynamic between Caleb and uh, Sahara, where we have 
dude who thinks that he literally can't have emotion because it's just too dangerous for his capabilities. Uh, and this, you know, more tenderhearted or like emotionally connected woman who is drawing that out of them. And, and Ivy is so just like wholehearted in her approach to Vasek and she just loves him and sees him in a way that he can't see himself. It's just very beautiful. I also love how bold Ivy is in this. Like she really puts herself out there emotionally. And I love that. Like she um, takes a risk and sends him basically like a a telepathic nude. (laughs) She sends him a mental image of her like without her top on. And he's like, did you mean to send this to me? And she's like, Yeah, and it's just so sweet. So I love that. Um, The sexy times take a long time to ramp up because much like Judd and Caleb, like there's the whole, if I feel something in my TK-ness, it can go like real crazy. For Vasek, very amusingly, when he is feeling too turned on, he just like sort of automatically teleports. So they'll be like making out in their bed and all of a sudden they're like in Alaska and then they're back in the bed. And then all of a sudden they're in like a desert (laughs) back in the bed. So I thought that was a nice little variant. And he goes to Judd to find out like basically how to have sex. (laughs) So it's very endearing. These little, I just, these tender little side men and they just kill me because they they deserve good things and they don't know how to have feelings, but they're trying so hard. Ugh, it kills me. Okay. Anyway, Judd, basically they have like the sweetest scene ever because Judd is like, I have hoped that one day one of the, like an arrow would come to me and ask me about this. Like, I'm so excited to tell you about this. I'm so excited that you have somebody that you're connected with enough that you can even contemplate having. Like, it's just very precious. Um, So he like gives him some tips. He's like, hey, fill up the bathtub. And when you have, you know, TK energy, you can zap it in there. We also find out that Judd got that tip from Stefan, who, if you'll remember, is in a um, novella. I forget. It's like a, a really early novella, but he's the one who was on the um, the uh, ocean station and he falls in love with the human scientist. He gets some tips about how to d- dissipate his TK energy from Stefan. And then he passes that on to Vasek, which I thought that was a nice little full circle moment. But anyway, so he gives he gives Vasek a bunch of quote unquote research, which Vasek refers to as the manuals. And that's where Vasek learns like, you know, how to go to pound town. Um, so they have some very sexy scenes ultimately. And, uh, they, I just really love them together there. I, I really bought their connection. I felt like that was communicated really effectively and you're really rooting for them and you're just angry and whatever that he's done this thing in his past that is going to compromise their future. So I guess all that to be said, like we can start maybe transitioning to some of the thematic things I really liked. So I already talked about like, war and soldiers and how I'm really feeling that with the arrows. That's something I really like about what happens with them is I think it definitely has metaphorical resonance on like what we ask people who fight our wars for us to endure emotionally. So I definitely was feeling that in this particular one. There's a lot of talk about how like Judd and Caleb have given people theoretical hope, like have given Arrows theoretical hope that maybe they could have a normal life of some kind, but that watching Vasek and Ivy be together really solidifies that for them. And like, they all want to kind of see them be together. They want to like come be in their house and stuff because like, 
it gives them a tangible, concrete hope that maybe that could be their life at some point. So I just thought that was really, really precious. I really enjoyed that. Um, I also think this sort of precipitating doom of the Psynet where the Psy, it seems like, cannot do the thing they need to do to save their world, which is like fully embrace having emotions. I just feel like it has so much resonance for climate change in terms of like, we all know a lot of the things we need to do to save our planet. And we just cannot get the political will to do it. I was I don't know, I was feeling that on this reread a lot. Um, And also just like there's a lot of talk about quarantine and, you know, these like kind of virulent uh, infection in the Synod. Like I think that definitely is something that hits different in 2021 than whenever I think this book was written in like 2014. So that just sort of hits a little bit differently now. Um, So I definitely felt like that had a lot of thematic resonance. I also will say I was reflecting on because like every time Ming Lebon comes on the page, I just hate him. I hate him so, so much. And I was trying to think through why. And at some point, I think it's like Sahara, somebody talks about the fact that he maybe it's Sienna that he's not, he doesn't always do terrible things. Like he sometimes does do the right thing. And I think that that made me realize why I hate him so much because with like Enrique's, like Enrique Santantos, I can never remember what the ordering of his name, um, Enrique. Enrique is a pure psychopath. And like, I also feel like there's no way that Enrique got to that situation without somebody raising him the way that he then raises Caleb. So I think I just have a certain level of feeling like he, like it feels pathological. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems like Enrique is truly sick in a way. So it it, it makes me, I mean, I hate him, obviously, because he's a monster. But I, I have more a feeling of like, this is basically a, a sick, like a zombie who's been infected and is doing terrible things, as opposed to just like a bad person. And Ming Lebon feels just like the epitome of like a bad person in politics, where like, yeah, sometimes he does the right thing, but it's never for the right reason. And like, he feels like he has more control over the bad things he chooses to do. It doesn't feel like it's some sort of like knee deep, like compulsion at a primal level. He chooses to do it. And I just hate him for that. I hate I hate Ming Lebon so much. Ming fucking Lebon. I hate him. Um, so I was I was thinking about that this time around. Yeah, this this one I felt like because there's a lot of sort of culmination of a lot of the sort of macro machinations that have been happening. I think that there's actually a lot of different metaphorical resonances you could read into this book, depending on kind of what you think the signet is a metaphor for, like how you choose to interpret that. Like if you, for instance, if you were thinking of the signet, for instance, as like a pernicious form of religion, you know, you could maybe think of the empaths as being people with like genuine faith, trying to kind of like cling to whatever goodness there was at the beginning of that cult or religion forming before it went bad. Like, I don't know. I just think that because this has so much talk about the Synet, you could go a lot of different ways in terms of how you think about it. If you think of the Synet as a metaphor for the good and bad potential of the internet, maybe the empaths are like reflecting, you know, some of the good things prevailing versus the trolls who feel like they're always, uh, you know, making the internet 
unlivable for the rest of us. So anyway, I just think that this one has a lot of room to be interpreted a lot of different ways. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that throughout of kind of seeing different shades of meaning uh, in different scenes in a way that, that I found really enjoyable. So in terms of where I rank this one, like I said, even just in the summary, I don't know if you can tell, but there's just so much stuffed into this book that I do think it's a little over full and therefore it doesn't feel as sort of like, it doesn't drive home a central theme as hard. Like for instance, Heart of Obsidian, I think because it was weighted more towards the relationship side of things, it didn't feel quite as full, even though there is still a lot that happens in that book. I think because this has pretty equally weighted between the macro and the micro, it just it, it ended up pacing wise, I think feeling a little too full. So for that reason, I would give it four stars overall, which for me is like an A minus. Um, but I would definitely put this in the top 10. And I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, overall, like I, I, I remembered loving it, and I still really loved it this time around. Um, in terms of my individual metric rankings, in terms of cozy community vibes, I'm going to give this like, I'm going to call it like an eight out of 10 arrows, like diehard loyal arrows learning to love each other openly again. (laughs) Did that make any sense? I don't know. There's just, I think that this, you, you start to see this in the previous book, but you really see it in this one that the arrows become like their own pack. And we're starting to see a lot of the different kind of family formations within that. So like Abbott, for instance, who we'd seen, we'd seen in an earlier book almost went to the pure side because his conditioning was so broken. He is assigned to Jaya and like Vasek, he falls in love with her and like that's getting set up. So I th- thought that was lovely. Zara, who if you'll remember is leading a pack of arrows who officially are dead, but really just dropped out of the Synet and formed their own little Synet. We find out that she is volunteering to bring them back into the Synet to help their fellow arrows fight this. And I love Zara. I will hear no bad things about her. She is coming up in a future book and I love her. So just know that she's great. I know some people don't like her, but I love her. Anyway, um, so we see that and we see all of these arrows like really trying to help Vasek like overcome the gauntlet situation. We find them really like invested in cheering for his relationship with Ivy. Like I just feel like this is the book where we get established that the arrows are a pack and I love that. So there's that. Um, I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 honeycomb protocol formations for political machinations because holy shit, like this is the culmination of most of what we've been working towards in this first season of the series. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, sexy times. I'm going to give this like an eight out of 10. My teleporting lover keeps taking me to the desert while we're going to pound towns. Um, This is a pretty sexy book. It takes a while for it to ramp up to it. But there's a lot of like, a lot of foreplay to before they get to the actual main event. And uh, once they get there, um, Vasek says that humans and changelings have a hobby, and I'm going to make sex my hobby. <laughs> and he's like, he talks a lot about how, you know, the way that arrows master things is by practice, and he's going to keep practicing. So um, it's, it's very charming. And uh, I really loved that element of things. So uh, I felt like it was a pretty sexy book. And then in terms of angst, I'm gonna give it eight out of 10. My lover, uh, is, has a ticking time bomb literally on his arm. Cause that's pretty angsty. And even though, you know, 
I think by this point in the series, you know it's going to get resolved, even beyond the fact that it's a romance, and you know that generally. We've also seen in the series that every time there's like this big obstacle that seems insurmountable, Nalini Singh finds a way around it in a way that feels very satisfying. I felt like this was no different. And I did also like, in this particular case, the metaphorical resonance of making choices in the past before you are with your partner that then impact your life with your partner. Um, I, I felt like that was a nice also just metaphorical layer to the particular angsty element of this one. But this one definitely got me in the feels. So all around, like I said, I think I'd give this a four star verging on four and a half, but I think a four star. And it's a real good one. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And next time we are talking about what is, I think the, I think of this as the series finale or the season finale for the first arc of the series. And that is Shards of Hope. It is Aiden's book. And uh, we're going to get some resolution to a lot of things that have been building up even more so than we got in this book. So we'll be back in two weeks to talk about that. So I hope you're as excited as I am. And uh, yeah, I think that that will do it for me. So if you enjoyed the podcast, definitely take a moment to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show. Uh, Thank you for bearing with whatever sound situation we end up with in this video, or not video, in this podcast, Um, because them's the breaks. Sometimes when you're not feeling well, you got to just kind of make it work. And uh, if you want to follow me, you can find me pretty much everywhere as at Books Like Woe on Goodreads and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, all the things you can find me at Books Like Whoa, and I will talk to you guys in two weeks about Shards of Hope. I will see you then, and uh, for my American friends, happy American Thanksgiving. Bye!